Welcome to season four of Libya Matters. In this season, we're looking at what justice really means. More than a decade after the 2011 uprising, after more than four armed conflicts, after at least three international political processes, and impunity for uncountable violations of human rights law and international humanitarian law, with an incredible lineup of guests, we reflect on all this and the findings of LFJL's year-long survey all across Libya on what Libyans' perceptions of justice are 10 years on. All with the aim of bringing a nuanced understanding to all matters Libya. I'm Marwa Mohammed. And I am Alham Saudi. Let's go. Welcome back. Marwa's away on mission, but fear not, May is back to host with me. Welcome, May. Thank you, Elham. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you welcome me back. So in the last episode with Carla Firstman, we were looking at the role of victims in achieving justice. It was an illuminating conversation about placing victims in the center of the criminal justice process. And I think that leads us beautifully on to today's episode, where we'll be looking at people's tribunals, which are born from grassroots movements and created by members of civil society, with victims at the heart of the process. That's right. I must admit, I had not really looked into people's tribunals in any great detail until I was asked to be on one last year. It was really interesting to me to delve into how they work and what impact they can have on people and a country. And at the risk of sounding sort of dramatic, I found the experience really life-changing. Sitting on the panel as a judge, as we heard witness after witness talking about their experiences, was really challenging. But it was also so inspiring. And of course, it makes me think of whether a tribunal of this kind would be effective in a situation like Libya. It's so powerful to, to hear you say that, and I can't wait to get to get into it. Shall we do it? Let's do this. Um, actually, when I was first asked to be on the Aban Tribunal uh, looking at atrocities in Iran, the very first person I called is our guest today. Gisunia is an Iran expert and is one of my favorite people to bounce ideas off when it comes to innovative approaches to international justice. She's the director of the Atlantic Council Strategic Litigation Project. Before that, she was the executive director and is the current board chair of the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center. She was a member of a previous People's Tribunal for Iran in 2012. She also previously worked on war crimes and crimes against humanity trials, both at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Court. So I think it's very safe to say we're in very, very good hands with today. Welcome, Gisu. It's so wonderful to welcome you to Libya Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And um, on Libya Matters, we always like to start with a definition. So to start off, I'd like to ask you, what, what do we mean uh, when we're talking about people's tribunal? How much of it is people, you know, the popular movement, and how much of it is the tribunal part, the the criminal process? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I would say a, a sort of formal definition of what a people's tribunal is, is an independent, peaceful, grassroots movement created by members of civil society to address impunity that is associated with ongoing or past atrocities. So that would be sort of the you know technical definition. But what if we want to unpack what that means, it means a lot of things. So sometimes as part of a people's tribunal, there is actually something that resembles a sort of mock court. I mean, it's something with a court proceeding where there's a prosecution. Sometimes there would be a defense, perhaps, if you know they want to show up, and there would be a judge's panel. And the thing is, the process is not legally binding, but it sort of resembles a court in that, you know, witnesses are giving testimonies um, and there are parties to a proceeding. But people's tribunals can also include other aspects. Sometimes they can have a commission of inquiry that's part of it. 
Um, a lot of times there's a sort of media communications and advocacy piece that really drives the work forward. And so a people's tribunal is actually a lot more than just a tribunal, um, this sort of non-legally binding tribunal. It's actually all the other pieces that really, I think, aim to get at the truth, aim to provide a measure of, you know, accounting and healing and some form of of justice to victims and survivors. So um, that's a more varied definition. But uh, the key thing is that it's driven by people. So it's not a state centric process. And I think that makes it more accessible and available as a justice option for people, for, you know, victim and survivor communities that really have a limitation of options elsewhere. Um, in whether that's through the UN system, which of course is really dictated by states or through processes in national courts that are again dictated by the whims of the prosecutors, the investigators and the justice ministry and international courts, which again are often you know, the product of um, a treaty signed by states. So this is, the people are really at the center of how these processes move forward. I think it's really great to hear you reflect on that because when we were trying to decide in, in the Aban Tribunal on, on what form it would take, I think one of the questions were like, well, do we want the theater of it, right? Where we're, sit, we're wearing gowns and we're sitting on a slightly elevated stage or do we want it to be more informal? And I think it was interesting because there was, there was sort of, we, we landed on, well, no, we kind of have to give victims this dignity of, behaving like judges, you know, in the kind of traditional sense of the word and and have the theater because that gives the weight and even from an imagery perspective, uh, when you're thinking of the kind of images that might come out of it or the way that it might be used for advocacy purposes, like you say, in, in terms of the media side of things, that actually that theater kind of sends the message that this is a big deal, that this is an important event that's occurring. But I think at the time I was really struggling when I was asked to do it as to why do it? Because the question was kind of what could a civil society led process, because, it, you know, this was led by a demand from the public, but also obviously by, um, you know, two or three key organizations that took it on to set it all up and get the witnesses and get the testimony and all the really heavy lifting that was done. But, you know, what can that really achieve in terms of accountability? Yeah. I feel like my own views on this have evolved as well mm. with time. I remember we actually had a conversation and I was sort of yeah. oscillating between, you know, is this a good thing? Is this not? So, so I could dive in a bit on, you know, what that what that means for me and why I think my views on it have evolved a bit as well, which is the tribunal, the people's court that I was part of, Iran tribunal mm -hmm. in 2012. It was to collect documentation and adjudicate crimes that had happened in the Islamic Republic of Iran in the 1980s. So it was a very historical crime. Um, and the process, in my view, was really necessary at that point for several reasons. One is that there was a real risk of victims and survivors uh, dying, frankly, and you know their testimony not being about those events not being preserved decades after the fact. Mm. There was obviously some limitations in terms of what could be brought in terms of justice processes, because when you have a historical crime like that, that predates when many national jurisdictions, you know, when many states signed on to the Rome Statute, 
and as part of that process had to incorporate atrocity crime legislation into their domestic legislation, right? So we find ourselves unable to, for example, bring crimes against humanity as a standalone crime in a court in Sweden if it happened before 2014. Mm -hmm. So, you know, statute of limitations issues, retroactivity issues, then just pure like collection of evidence and preservation of this evidence issues because of the historical nature of what was happening. So also, if there has been no justice process for decades after the fact, then having a non-legally binding process is probably one of the only ways to go and could really recharge and refresh a conversation around what justice options are available. So it was very much meant as an advocacy tool in addition to the sort of preservation and collection. And what's happened is that, in fact, the very first universal jurisdiction trial for against a representative of the Islamic Republic of Iran for core international crimes is currently happening in Sweden against somebody who bears allegedly bears responsibility for the killing of thousands of political prisoners in 1988 in Iran. Mm -hmm. And that was the subject of Iran tribunal. And in fact, a lot of the information that was collected as part of the commission of inquiry, which was the first part of that tribunal, I participated in the second part, which was this non-legally binding trial that happened at the Peace Palace in The Hague. Mm. Again, a nod to the ceremony, right? To have it in a traditional house of justice and to you know, give that feeling to folks who are participating in the process. But a lot of the information that was collected from those processes are now form a good part of the evidence that has been considered in the case. And so, of course, you know, witnesses have been called, there are civil plaintiffs, mm. and many of them were sourced through that Iran tribunal process from the community coming together and identifying who had grievances and claims. But some of the supporting, uh, you know, background information is even from those processes. And so that's a real world example of how that people's court translated into a concrete good in terms of compatibility and support for a legally binding process in a national court under universal jurisdiction laws for core international crimes. Mm. With Avon Tribunal, I think we're actually going to see a similar use. Reason being because while at the time, you know, after the crackdown on peaceful protests in November 2019 in Iran, yeah. Contemporary crime, obviously, this would slot into the ability to bring, you know, UJ prosecutions if and where an alleged perpetrator enters a territory or if there's some other path to jurisdiction. Mm. There could be a lot that could be done and the witness evidence is fresh and, you know, there's there's ways to go about it. But we actually found ourselves in an odd point of time. After that happened, you know, one would think that an accountability mechanism at the UN would sort of be a shoo-in for something like that. However, it just so happened that there were also mass protests in Iraq that were met with extreme violence by the state. There were mass protests in Lebanon. Yeah. There were protests in many different countries around the world in a similar time period in 2019. And so the sort of political will to 
create an accountability mechanism for just one mm. event or like one, you know, a very tragic, brutal and bloody series of events, but one situation, the appetite just wasn't there. And then the COVID-19 pandemic followed shortly thereafter. And so I think now with Aban Tribunal, like the, the sad news is that right after that happened, there should have been a UN process. There should have been justice processes immediately on the move, but there wasn't and there hasn't been. And so I think the function of something like Aban is that it will have collected and preserved that evidence because we're going to be, you know, in November, we'll be three years on mm. with no accountability. And so I think actually the importance of it is it's quite critical, actually, because there are still individuals inside the country and outside of the country mm. that are searching for justice and that hasn't come to them yet. Hi, my name is Sonia Markova and uh, I'm a research fellow with uh, Dolores for Justice in Libya. And I have uh, been working on the research on the justice perception in Libya. People really had, as it is, little trust in the Libyan criminal justice system um, because they have it's been inactive or they, they saw that they might, there's lots of uh, risk of interference within the justice uh, process by different armed groups, militias um, and state actors. So they wanted justice to be to have some sort of a control over justice. They didn't want justice to be somewhere uh, far away. They wanted it within the communities where they can participate um, and, and have that feeling of justice being delivered. And I think one of the things we're unpacking in this in this series of Libya Matters is this is all stemmed by um, a study that we've been doing for a year and a half of what justice means to people. And, and I think sometimes we, well, quite often, we lawyers are much more narrow in our definition of justice than victims are or the general public is. And one thing that kept coming up is, you know, justice is very all-encompassing, is very holistic. It includes many, many forms of justice. And, and one key element is um, narrative writing, right? And I think for me, that was my my anxiety of, of sitting as a judge is I didn't want people to misunderstand what we could achieve or what we could give them in a people's tribunal. And so probably the question I asked most frequently of witnesses was, what are you hoping to get out of this? Because I wanted to make sure that we were kind of on the same page. And what was really humbling to me is they were very clear what they were getting out of, you know, what they wanted out of this. There was, you know, there was a lot of phrases of we want the world to know. Uh, we want this to be recorded. We want our story, our version of it to be out there. We want the truth to be known. And so on some level, I'm like, oh, you know, accountability, justice, as much as I always think primarily that it, that looks like criminal accountability and that looks like someone eventually, you know, in a, in a, in a courtroom, there was a sense of satisfaction that we sent, we got from the victims in being able to be given the audience, if you like. And that's come through in our report as well, as people value that you can have more than one type of mechanism to deal with, with, what, you, um, with what you've suffered. So there could be a, a, a criminal process, but there could also be a process which is just about making sure that the world knew what happened. Um, and I think there was a moment there where you could see that the story getting out was starting to agitate the Islamic Republic. And I think that was very satisfying because we kept getting more people come forward when they could see the reaction of of the state trying to shut down the tribunal. And so I think there is 
this notion um, that accountability is, you know, we, we keep coming back to it in Libya matters, that it's the lowercase a, it's like not the capital A of criminal proceeding, but accountability is also naming, shaming, getting the information out there into the public domain, making sure the victims have a louder voice than than the perpetrators. Um, and I think for me, this is where this these kinds of mechanisms are are interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as you were saying, Gisu, you know, criminal accountability is really, really important, but it, it is so holistic and there's lots of other ways um, sort of to be able to provide justice to the victims. And I was just wondering, you, you mentioned before about uh, commissions of inquiry and, and we have had a number of commissions of inquiry in, in Libya and we have a, a current fact-finding mission at the moment. Um, so we're hoping that you know, if there was to be a People's Tribunal for Libya, that they would be able to support those investigations. But actually, from your experiences, I know you've been involved in a number of um, People's Tribunals. Maybe you could just reflect on, um, out, and as Alham's just been doing as well, outside of the criminal accountability sort of aspect, what do you think you, what have you found or, or experienced to be that other way of, of getting justice for the victims? Yeah, I think the narrative is so important, right? So, I mean, the whole reason that people's courts are even a thing is because of the Russell Tribunal. Mm. And we know that the Russell Tribunal was set up by these philosophers, including Bertrand Russell, where it gets the where it gets the name from. But that was all about U.S. government actions in Vietnam. And of course, I mean, from what I recall, there hasn't been much with respect to criminal accountability there, or at least the you know, the US government at the time, none of the political leaders were ever held to account in a court of law, as I think, I think we know. But the narrative that was created, or rather that was brought to light out of this process, when it was a two part process, was really critical, because it shone a light on, you know, social media, there was no social media at the time, of course, there wasn't even <laughs> maybe there was like the kernels of an internet at the time. But there was, there wasn't this is like, this was in the 70s, right? So mm -hmm. it's not like now where these atrocities are sort of broadcast in real time, quite unfortunately, and we can sort of follow along on TikTok, even uh, what's happening in Ukraine or previously, you know, uh, in Syria, looking on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So there was a real risk of there being propaganda around, you know, who are the heroes, quote unquote, who are the good guys, and also a diminishing of the real atrocities that were occurring and that were occurring at the hands of of US forces. And so I think that, I mean, the very, you know, original template of what a people's court is, is it was really about the narrative. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't even as much about the accountability piece. It was really about making sure that this narrative about US military power and its excesses and the atrocities that were occurring was memorialized. So that's in the very DNA of people's tribunals. Um, and certainly the processes that I've been a part of or advised on also have that as an aim. Often there is a state involved that is unwilling to acknowledge its role in atrocities, engages in very heavy propaganda about its efforts. So whether that's the Uyghur tribunal that recently rendered a judgment, mm -hmm. um, um, whether that's the various tribunals that have been established for Sri Lanka, they all have that in common. There's, um, you know, there's been tribunals for Palestine, right? So it's really about establishing mm -hmm. a narrative that is in line with what survivors and victims suffered. It's very centered around the harms mm -hmm. 
And it can also, so there's the narrative setting, which is sort of like historical record, making sure that, you know, the narrative isn't, isn't set by the powerful and dominant states in the equation, and that's people driven. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the advocacy aspect of it. Now, a lot of that advocacy would be aimed at accountability in the end, but some of that advocacy is aimed elsewhere at targeted human rights sanctions, for instance, yeah. that could impose, you know, asset freezes and travel bans on some of the alleged perpetrators. Mm -hmm. I've seen it as much on the granular level of wanting to name and shame individuals who are mm -hmm. working at universities or institutions outside of the country, often in democracies when they hail from non-democracies that were yeah. brutalizing the people. Um, and so they'll be naming and shaming campaigns to get them fired, for instance. You know, it can can really take a range of forms. And one thing I've heard from the victims and survivors that I work with is, you know, sometimes I've been surprised because with my lawyer hat on, of course, I'm like, accountability, accountability, you know, that's mm. what I'm after. And for some of them, they say, you know, part of what we want to do is just name and shame. Like, that's part of the justice for us. And so sometimes they don't even care, honestly, about whether there's a conviction mm. in the end, as much as they care about whether that person yeah. is fired from their job, mm. has nowhere to go, and sort of like feels a social pain. It's interesting, because I wouldn't think that that would be what the desired goal would be. Like, wouldn't yeah. you want this person behind bars? But Sometimes it's about social being socially outcast from a society. Sometimes it's about, mm. you know, making sure that they have to really reflect and atone for what they've done. And that that doesn't always mean yeah. jail time or, you know, a civil suit award money judgment against somebody. It can mean different things. But also I feel that actually victims often are more practical than lawyers in the sense that, you know, they might have a sense, well, that's not coming anytime soon. And so at the very least, let the world kind of be on our side on this. And and so I, there was such pragmatism in the conversations we were having that again was, I just, I've like, I've, I really meant it. And I said it was life-changing because it was, I learned so much from, from that experience. And then it was all just running in parallel with the study we were doing with people in Libya, in, on the ground in Libya, of what they, what they think justice means. And, you know, we do have, lawyers have the most narrow of definitions of justice of anyone we interviewed and including ourselves. And so I think it is, it's this idea that, you know, sometimes actually victims are very aware of the situation they're in and are, are a better place to say, well, that might be theoretically a good thing to have. And maybe it will happen in the future. And maybe if we preserve the evidence and all these things that we tell them are a good thing, but whoever writes the story controls the story. And so this is one way of kind of getting your version. And I think that's what gets under the skin of states, um, so much uh, with something like this, because it's so much, you know, I'm, I was comparing this process to say the process of us trying to get people to engage with the ICC in Libya, which is a criminal process, but there's so little ownership of the victims in that process. There's so little transparency from that, from the ICC to the victims. There is so little outreach, no outreach in most instances from the court that it becomes their project. That's as an international project. It's not our project. And I think what's interesting with this is because it's so centered on victims and if it's done right, and, and it would be good to reflect on kind of what might go wrong if it's done wrong. But if it's done right, you know, you are actually being, you, you, it is victim led in all the good ways. And so in some way it's more, you know, some of the victims we were talking to in, in the People's Tribunal who knew very well there is no risk, there is no chance of conviction. 
versus people in the ICC who probably also thought there was no chance of conviction, <laughs> come to think of it. But, you know, theoretically there is. There was more a sense of euphoria around that project of the People's Tribunal because it felt like this could change something. This could change an entire country's narrative as opposed to um, a very specific technical case that's so far removed. And so I think that for me has, has been an education I'm con- and I'm continuing to um, to learn a lot about it. But I think it, it brings me to thinking about, so we've talked about the why we should do it, what it is. But I guess my next question down is, okay, fine, we get to now the situation of, put, of deciding this might be a good a good thing to do. The big question is, you know, for this to be credible, the people sitting on the panel need to be credible. And so who do you choose to do something like this? And I think, you know, I, I've struggled massively when I was asked, I'm like, I'm not an Iran expert. I am not a barrister by training. I'm a, I'm a solicitor, so I'm not kind of a contentious soul um, by, by nature. Um, I'm, I'm sure many people in Libya would disagree, but I think it's, you know, I, I'm not that kind of lawyer. I'm not a judge. And it was interesting because I think the people who organized that had a very clear idea in their mind of what kind of mix of individuals they wanted. But I wonder whether you had thoughts about that, because surely that's where your the credibility of the project is derived from, right? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't tweet about this at the time, though I think I wanted to, and maybe I was on a you know social media hiatus or something. Um, <laughs> I was very pleased by the judge lineup on Aban Tribunal because it was diverse. Mm in different ways. And I think one thing that's really important and, you know, it's not always practiced is that sometimes when we're picking, you know, lofty figures in international criminal law who have served as judges Mm -hmm. to also be on a judge's panel for a people's tribunal, Mm -hmm. there tends to be one mold of who that person is. Um, And I think it's really good to have um, a more diverse lineup. I think that that is more reflective of what justice should look like. And especially when we're dealing with situations from all over the world, it's not appropriate for the bench to all be, you know, solely from North America or Europe um, with no ties to other communities elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And to all be men, for instance, would also not be really great. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that was a bit the mold. Mm-hmm. I think, and even with the prosecution teams, and we've now seen that very much change with more recent people's tribunals. And I think that's great. So I think just as a starter, that was a really good sign about Aban Tribunal that they had put the thought into what, you know, I don't know if that was intentional thought or if it's just because subconsciously they're just, you know, very attuned to that. I'm not sure, but it was it was great to see. Mm. And um, so that's just step one. But then step two is obviously, I think it's actually important to have non folks who are not connected to the context on the bench. Mm-hmm. Not because somebody who is from that country, for example, or has the nationality of that country couldn't be objective in their ruling on it, but more because of the perception, Mm. I feel. It's one thing for the prosecuting team to have folks from the country, that's completely fine. But I think for the judges, you know, the bench, I'd like to, I think having a a range of folks who are from other countries and who are not connected to those events is actually really important from a credibility perspective so that, Mm. you know, the state that's under the microscope can't sort of denounce the process as politically motivated. I mean, they will nonetheless, obviously, but, you know, to be clear, but, but they have less to stand on when it's clear that these are judges who 
have no dog in, in the fight other than the fight for humanity mm-hmm. and, you know, are just calling it as they see it. And I think it's critical for the judge's bench to also not just be an additional arm of the prosecutor. They have to really reason with the facts. And even if the conclusions are not in line with what maybe, you know, the prosecuting team wants or what some of the folks in the civil society group want, yeah. you know, we have to understand that that, that may result as well and that that's important to establish that this was a really fair assessment i think the issue the only issue i really see with people's tribunals and there's no good answer for it is the lack of a defense typically so the state of course is invited to attend respond but as we know they often don't um Mm. And it's not a legally binding process. So, of course, like they're not going to. So in a way, it's a trial in absentia, which is quite legitimate in many jurisdictions, in fact. But I would say having been on defense teams once upon a time myself um, before international tribunals, I think Mm -hmm. that was maybe one little point of hesitancy for me when I was on the, you know, the quote unquote prosecuting side on Iran tribunal, you know we are not hearing from the defense. And so what does that mean? But I think that's more of a concern for people who come from an adversarial system, like I do, and much less for people who come from civil law systems, where quite frankly, you know, an investigating judge is doing much of the legwork before you even enter the courtroom. So I think that's just a very kind of American, UK, like centric view of mine, that's not necessarily uh, shared by others around the world. But that would be the only thing I would say. Yeah. And I think that's really a really valid point, because what you don't want, and what, what I certainly was very conscious for, is as a judge feeling like you have to fill that void because there's there's clearly gaps in this questioning. Do I fill that void? Actually, should I fill that void? Is that my role? If the defense doesn't show up that I do the defense's work. And I think trying to kind of step back and go, no, I need to ask the questions that I need for my judgment as opposed to questioning kind of for the, for the sake of filling the role that's missing from this from this process. And I think that that's interesting because a lot of the times, you know, I'm not a defense lawyer, but there certainly were defense lawyers on the team. And I think it's nature for them. There was like, they could see things that they could follow up on um, and trying to say, no, you know, being a judge, we should be kind of ensuring we just get the information that we need for our judgment as opposed to, to counter or to um, defend or the, or the like. Um, we'll make sure that this episode comes out after the ruling because I'm not meant to be discussing any of these things in in public. But I think it's um, it's a really it's interesting because we're in, we're in the process of writing the ruling now and going back and rereading everything. And it's it's quite interesting to try and you know decide how you even present something like that. And I think that brings. Sorry, I've I've just gone a total on no, a total no, side note. It's totally fine. I think listening to you both um, sort of speak about the challenges about um, there not being a defense is making me quit. Just think about is that a question of timing like is there any way to counter um sort of this issue by adjusting or th- or thinking about when is the right time uh for a people's tribunal is there any sort of way that we could counter this challenge and other challenges by picking the perfect time to do it and is there a perfect time for a people's tribunal you know it's an interesting question because now that i'm thinking of libya the interesting thing is it's almost i wouldn't say it's in reverse but it's almost a situation in which there are traditional justice options for Libya, not great ones, of course, but there's something, you know, there was a UNSC referral to the ICC, you know, there's some things, admittedly, probably weak things. But the point is, like, there's some justice, legally binding justice path. And often with the people's tribunals, there is no path. 
right? So there's often been no path. So whether it's the Uyghur tribunal or on Kashmir, or I think Myanmar at the time, um, there was no process at that point. You know, things obviously changed with um, the Bangladesh jurisdictional ruling at the ICC and, and the ICJ, you know, claim from the Gambia and all that. But um, so it's almost a process of it's happening in a, in a different direction. And so I would be very intrigued to see, you know, what results from that, because I've often thought of these people's tribunals as a way to collect and preserve evidence that might otherwise, you know, not be available later on down the line, should a mechanism be set up, should a justice process move forward. But here, it almost seems like in the case of Libya, it would be to galvanize, you know, parts of the population around this idea of justice, helping them with their healing, with the process that they need to go through with the narrative setting, because the traditional justice paths have failed them. Mm. But I, I, no immediate example comes to mind of another people's court, maybe for Sri Lanka, maybe because on Sri Lanka, there have been different attempts and things have yeah. not gone the way intended. And so maybe that, but I think Libya would be a new, yeah. it would be a new model for what a people's court could do. I mean, that sounds like a challenge that I'd, I'd, I'd gladly take on, but I think there is just you are setting all that out has made, yeah, I'd never really thought of it that way because it is, I was thinking about it the way you were explaining it, probably because you were the one that I went to to teach me about people's tribunals. And so I'm thinking like you in the sense that, well, um, this is really good because it preserves evidence and all these good things. And it's a precursor to something else. As I was doing the process, I, I could see the value of it being a standalone process. But actually, I think there's been certainly in the context of the ICC in Libya and the International Criminal Court, there's definitely a sense of fatigue with it, complete disillusionment. You know, we like to give the stats that in 11 years, there's been five public arrests. Three of them have have gone because the people have died before anything happened. One, the jurisdiction was lost so that we only left with, with one. And so I think, you know, it, it is, people don't even want to hear about it, to be honest, when you talk about it. And that's done a lot of damage for the case for international justice in Libya. They're like, if the International Criminal Court can't do it, why are you telling me universal jurisdiction will work? Why are you telling me that we should consider a special court? And that's something, you know, we've also been talking to people about in the surveys, whether actually, you know, you need more of like a hybrid court or something for Libya, you know, where you have, where it is binding and all those things, but it is set up um, in, in for a specific purpose. If I take a moment, I think the purpose that a People's Tribunal could serve in Libya is what you say, the kind of educational element the advocacy part of it. But also there are, and I think this is where I've seen that people's tribunals work better is when they're looking at a very specific event as opposed to like a longer period of time. So it's, you know, it's looking at a specific uh, atrocity or a specific crime. And I think in Libya, we have a lot of those that have been overlooked over the decades. And I think that's where, you know, it's it's worth spending time on because the mechanisms we have, whether it's the ICC, whether some of the fact-finding missions, they have years worth of crimes to consider. And it, they're, they're normally temporal as opposed to like, it's, you know, having to do with an event. Whereas, you know, off the top of my head, you know, like the Abu Salim atrocity in, in, in the 90s in Libya, where, you know, um, there was mass execution of 1,200 people in a prison, that merits this kind of investigation, if you like. More recently, we've had um, Gharur, which is a similar situation to 
a barn where it was protesters being shot at, at you know, point blank and, and, and attacked uh, very viciously. And so I think there where it's limited, but it's been overlooked because it's sort of seen a, in the big picture as a, one of many events that have happened. And so it doesn't really get enough light that I think perhaps that's the natural place for it. But um, I feel that it's something we should maybe develop together, I guess, <laughs> to make a case for this. I would just like to say, though, I, I think that in a situation where there has been so many different separate cases of so many sort of mass atrocities, how would you decide and who it brings back to the question of who who gets to decide what's worth you know establishing the tribunal for and where do you focus your attention on at the risk of of saying oh well the house isn't in order elsewhere like if the if the larger transitional justice issues um haven't been addressed why focus in on a specific case what would be the sort of yeah the underlying maybe reason maybe Gisi you can just from your experiences like what triggers ultimately um and and who decides you've said you know at the very beginning that it's you know independent grassroots movement but what does that actually mean and and what does that look like yeah you know it makes me think I think there's a few ways to answer this and a few few things to think of one is just the way it's traditionally happened, which is that there would be a civil society group that has organized around sometimes a specific event. So, for example, with the Iran tribunal, it was mostly about this 1988, what's referred to as the 1988 massacre. So that was a seminal event that people organized around, you know, mass atrocity. But then um, it could be done in a different way as well. I mean, sometimes there's a civil society group that just would like to see a form of justice. And so they maybe have the resources to go to lawyers and sort of, you know, convene a panel of judges and be able to actually put an event like this on. Mm. So I think there's also a question of, you know, what civil society organization is doing that and who has access and who doesn't. But what I was thinking is that what can also happen is that sometimes it's meant for a strategic advocacy goal. Not always, you know, sometimes it's very, sometimes the agenda is driven by victims and survivors and they don't have an advocacy goal other than to discuss their stories and make sure that they have their, you know, day, something resembling a day in court. For other folk groups of organized folks, though, I think sometimes there's a specific issue that is wanting to be addressed. And so, for example, the People's Court that's looking at journalists, which had its first hearing, I think, in November of 2021 in The Hague, mm -hmm. you know, I imagine that there were, well, there were a lot of NGOs that are focused on protections for journalists, rights of a free press, looking at a cross-country cutting tribunal because it didn't deal just with one country, it was Sri Lanka, Mexico, you know, and the killing of journalists and this problem globally. Mm. So I think sometimes you come at it from a thematic issue. Yeah. Some of the people's tribunals devoted to the environment and environmental degradation, for instance, might be coming at it from a more thematic place. And that's about a global issue that deserves attention that isn't maybe country-specific related to a mass atrocity. It's related to a thematic issue that cuts across countries and regions. And so that would be a different agenda than you know a civil society organization comprised of victims and survivors that are moving that forward. I think in the case of Libya, 
one thing that could be interesting is the fact that there's obviously international players involved. So we have the UAE, you know, we have, we have, we have, we have a lot of folks. <laughs> yeah. We have other yeah. folks involved there. And what is always striking to me is just how little coverage there is yeah. of what is happening in Libya. And I think part of that may be just because I'm in the U.S. and the U.S. is not you know, not super involved in some ways as Europe may be a bit more. And so maybe the coverage is different. I don't know. But I think people's tribunal that might look at the role of external players, for instance, would be something that would grab the attention. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be a process that's set up for victims and survivors in the sense of them having their day in court and really like kind of grounded to that process. It would be a process to try to trigger a global conversation again about why what is happening in Libya, why and how all these external players are involved and what that means from the point of like weapons industry, surveillance tech, drones, you know, the whole gamut. And that might start to change posture of, I mean, so much happens through political will, obviously, and that might start to change the posture for what this means for a political solution, you know, who has skin in the game. And I feel like the average citizen has no idea about what is really going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really exciting to sort of hear you say that. And I think me and Elham actually just looked at each other. Um, we had like a, a yeah, real warm moment. A going, oh. <laughs> moment. Uh, we've just uh, released a report recently actually called um, Enshrining Impunity, where we looked at the role of the international actors in the Libyan conflict. And I think actually I had not thought at all about being able to apply that to um, a, a people's tribunal. So I think it's really actually it's so much um, sort of more diverse and that the opportunities are so much vaster than I had originally thought sort of coming into this not I mean both of you have uh, sat on people's tribunals so I'm I'm very much um the novice here but yeah it's not something that I thought about before so I think it would be really exciting as something for us to explore it, it absolutely is and, and guess you just to say I, I feel like we have a, another a project that we could build together here but I feel that it's it's I feel we just, just, I think we're done. This is like officially a, a mic drop with, with that last one. Um, but, you know, in the Enshrining Impunity Report, we identify at least 10 countries that have had direct impact on the conflict. And not only are they countries that are influential in Libya, but they're countries that have veto power in the UN Security Council. They're countries who have a lot of influence at the international level. And so they are not ones where a lot of the traditional tools will ever go after them, right? Like we, you know, as much advocacy as we like to think we do at the UN, we're not going to get anyone, well, maybe now from Russia, but at least not for Libya, <laughs> for Libyan purposes, we weren't, you know, other than the Wagner group, we weren't able to be successful there. But, you know, there is Russia, you're looking at, France has been implicated, uh, UAE, like you mentioned, um, so many other, so many other players that those tools are not open to us, but I think giving the power back to the people might be the route we uh, we have to go to. So I feel this is this is a good place to pause. There's one final segment we like to do. Um, and as you've uh, been so amazing so far, I think you'll also be incredible on this one. It's called Debunking the Narrative, where we try to throw things that we hear that are sort of a bit frustrating or we think maybe are not accurate. And we just like your instinctive reaction, a few words, not, um, you know, like a gut instinct reaction to the to the phrase. So I'll, I'll go with the first one. Yeah. Um, what justice can come out of an unofficial, non-judicial process? Narrative building, 
a day in court for the victims and survivors, it functioning as an advocacy tool for accountability purposes that would be legally binding. Perfect. That was such an eloquent summary as well of our entire conversation. Um, So I'll do one as well. So um, people's tribunals give false hope to victims and are more about the organizations hosting them than anything else. Oh, absolutely not. I think with responsible organizations and setup who apprise, you know, victims and survivors of what the process is, don't make false promises, you know, just let them know what this is. Um, those risks can be avoided. And victims and survivors have agency. So this idea that they should not participate in the process because they will be fooled or something. They're obviously very smart and can figure out, you know, what this is and what this isn't. And they engage because every other door has been closed to them typically. So, yeah, I don't agree with that. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, thank you so much, Isu. Like the very first time I met you, I don't know, it was in New York um, and I was rushed and a mess. And you sat me down and calmed me down before I went into a security council, um, some security council meetings. And just as you did then, you did now, where my mind has been running with this and trying to think of a lot of things and you've just calmed me down and given me some ideas. So thank you for inadvertently becoming a mentor um, and for all your amazing input on this. It's been a really invigorating conversation for me. Yeah, I feel excited. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great. And I look forward to the People's Court on Libya. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Christina Rossini, and I work with LFJL on accountability for human rights violations and international crimes. Just to clarify, what are people's tribunals? They're grassroots forums of justice to adjudicate specific instances of human rights violations. They work in very similar ways to any other tribunal. They conduct inquiries, followed by a hearing and a legal judgment with the prosecution, defense, jurors and witnesses. Yet they are very different from other tribunals because they are grassroots initiatives established by civil society rather than the state or international institutions. This means that they cannot enforce decisions, arrest suspects or punish perpetrators. So why do they exist? They are used to address impunity in specific situations that are overlooked or out of the reach of established institutional procedures, like domestic courts or international justice mechanisms. For example, the first People Tribunal was set up in 1967 to address alleged war crimes committed by the United States in Vietnam. Since then, People's Tribunals have developed to address many kinds of situations, from genocide to environmental degradation. People tribunals can raise awareness about an issue and influence public debate. Often, they are the starting point for further work towards criminal justice. They provide an alternative forum to victims to testify, acknowledge their suffering and help to establish the truth. This way, they create a space for victims of human rights violations to have their voices heard. If we look at Libya, what specific violations or incidents are being overlooked that could benefit from a people's tribunal? This is something that we're thinking about at LFJL, and it would be great to get input from our listeners. Information about how to get in touch with us can be found in the show notes of this episode. In next week's episode, we explore... And we think that the prosecution's part of it can be much more effectively handled by two elements. One, a special court to to handle serious offenders and those with international connections, etc. And uh, the um, strengthening of the national system... Uh, to, to deal with some others.
And so that's the approach that we want to take and, and make sort of development of that. Now, you know, obviously the ICC <laughs> uh, getting it out of there. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by me, Marwa Mohammed and Alham Saudi. It is produced by Demiri Media. The people who put season four of Libya Matters together are Mae Thompson, Alexandra Azua, Marwa Mohammed and me. It was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, Mohammed Al-Masiri, Mohammed Al-Mustafa, Rawiya Hamza, Christina Orsini, Mirna Nasrallah, and Jürgen Schur. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ.